The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Thanks. G'day. My name's Bill. It's great to be here today. Uh, my family and I, we're here, are members at Lakeshore Church up at Budrum. Um, I've been a pastor there up until the last six months, and it's been a real joy over these number of years to support the church here at Life Centre. We were able to support the church when you first started a number of years ago. And Jimmy and I have been friends over the years since we studied together at Bible College. So I'm really pleased to be able to be here together with you this morning. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Father God, thanks for your Word. Thanks for the simple but profound reality that these words we've just heard, they're not human words, they're your words. So we pray that by your Spirit you'll apply them to our lives and to our hearts this morning. John's purpose in writing was that we would believe in the Son of God and that by believing we would have life in his name. And so we pray that this morning you'll help us to to strengthen our trust in Jesus, to see him more clearly, to love him, and that by knowing and loving and believing in him, you'll equip us and prepare us and train us for life in his name, life together as a church and life as we live as your people in our community. We pray... Uh, We pray for Jimmy this morning, preaching, I believe, at North Lakes. Please bless him and his ministry, that he will be refreshed. And as we're here this morning, I pray that you'll help me to speak clearly, faithfully, uh, boldly, and with compassion from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've officiated a number of weddings over the years, uh, and initially I found it very stressful because it's such a big day and you feel like you're right in the middle of everything and you just don't want to mess up everybody's big day. Uh, And it was really great this morning to see Tyler and Beth. Um, I was at your wedding not too long ago, which is awesome. As time's gone on, I really have come to enjoy weddings, kind of relaxed a bit, and I've worked out something which is really obvious, which is, as the, the pastor at the wedding, it's not about me. I'm like the last person it's about. It's all about the couple, isn't it? It's their big day. Nobody's paying any attention to the pastor. They're paying attention to the groom up there sort of fidgeting around nervously while he's waiting for the bride to arrive. Or that moment when the bride arrives and all eyes are on her. Uh, Although if you turn and you sneak a look at the groom, the look on his face is fantastic. The wedding is all about that moment when the couple say, you know, I do. Uh, or when they're pronounced man and wife, or when they, you may kiss the bride, or, or whatever it is. It's their big day. As I have got to know the wedding service more and more, a Christian wedding service, I've actually come to know and love and recognise that even more than that, weddings are actually about Jesus. Everything in a Christian wedding is pointing to Jesus. We know that weddings are a picture of Christ in the church and so when we're all there, we're celebrating his grace to us and seeing that picture of the gospel. So I think that applies to lots of different areas of our life. We start out being self-conscious, especially if you're doing something new or you're with a new bunch of people. You're imagining that you know, eyes are on you, you're not really sure. As time goes on, hopefully, we work out that putting other people first is the best approach to every situation we find ourselves in. And then as time continues to go on, hopefully we begin to get to that point where we're realising this is about Jesus. What, is he, what can I do here to represent him? How can I love people around me in his name? So this morning we're in John chapter 1, verse 29 to 42. 
John the Baptist is the obvious most important person in this passage. He's kind of the star of the show in this first few verses. But he's crystal clear. He's worked out what I've just been talking about. He's not the centre of the action. He is certainly putting other people before himself, but more than that, he's putting Jesus first. Jesus is the most important person in this passage. So that's my hope for us today, that we'll see that Jesus is the blazing centre of these verses in John, of God's entire plan for history, of all existence, and I pray that as we're here together, looking at God's word together, that he will become the blazing centre of our lives to an increasing measure. And our life together as God's people. So, John chapter 1, verse 29. We'll look through this passage. There's three you know, sections, or I'm going to move through it in three sections. First, looking at John the Baptist, and then finishing by looking at the disciples, the first disciples. But in the middle, spending some time thinking about the main character, Jesus. And what do we learn about Jesus? The Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Messiah. John 1, 29. Day 2. Uh, Jimmy introduced you guys last week to, you know, the action starting to speed up. A bit of a story. We had day 1. Uh, today we have day two and day three. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a moment. This is a moment maybe a little bit like when the bride appears at a wedding. The moment everyone's been waiting for, the moment the groom has been waiting for. John the Baptist was so clear last week. This is not about him. His whole purpose is to declare, to make the way clear for Jesus. And here's his moment of public witness. Behold, here he is. A fantastic moment. And he uses this word, which is a good Bible word, behold. Uh, Whenever you see that, um, it's a symbol to pay attention, to tune in. This is important. Behold, so your ears prick up. What's coming next is crucial. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's got the spotlight and he's so clear on what he's going to use it for. Verse 30, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. We're referring back now to early in John's prologue when he said exactly that, there's one coming after me who is before me because he's ranked before me. Uh, As you pause and try to wrap a head around what he's getting at, he's really clear. Jesus is higher ranked than me and the reason is because he is greater than me. I really like that. Sometimes in life when we, we move down a rank, we spend a lot of our attention justifying it to make ourselves feel better or defending ourselves to others. It's look, I know I missed out on that promotion, but if I hadn't been sick that last week or if I'd had a better team or was a bit more supportive of me, I know I really deserved it, but anyway, I didn't get it. I know I didn't make the team that I was hoping to make and I know I'm actually good enough to make that team and if I had a better coach, I probably would have made it. John's got nothing of that. He's like, Jesus, he's ranked higher than me, and he should be. He's greater than me. He was before me. Jesus is the star of the show. I really love John, one of my favourite characters in the Gospel of John, because he's relentless. I'm not the Messiah. My favourite line from John, he must increase and I must decrease. Then verse 31, I myself says John the Baptist, did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. 
John's testimony is weaved throughout these verses, and because we're familiar with it, we might miss it, but he's really saying, I didn't always recognise who Jesus was. And we understand from the other Gospels that they were related. We take it. They would have known each other, maybe even as children. But John's point is that he never understood who Jesus was until a certain point, which is what he's about to explain. But here's his mission, one purpose for his baptising ministry, that Jesus might be revealed. So then he explains his testimony, his witness in verse 32 and 33. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. John tells the story of how he came to realise exactly who Jesus was. And he's referring back to the occasion when he had the privilege to baptise Jesus. Interestingly, John, the author of John's Gospel, and for these next chapter or two, we have to continually remind ourselves of which John we're talking about. John the Baptist is telling the story of his baptism of Jesus, but John, the author of the Gospel, hasn't chosen to record those events. They're recorded in the other Gospels. But that's what John the Baptist is referring back to, this occasion when Jesus was baptised, then the Spirit descended from heaven like a dove, and the voice of the Father spoke, affirming who he was. This privilege that John has, he uses his platform. He's the man of the moment. All the authorities are coming to see him. People are paying attention. He uses the moment to tell the simple story of how he came to know who Jesus was. And it's, all, it's the privilege that we all have. At some point, you didn't know who Jesus was. Even if you grew up in a thoroughly Christian home and occasionally you've given way to that temptation to say something like, oh, I don't have a very impressive testimony, well, it's not really relevant here because at some point you didn't know who Jesus was. You might have heard about him. You might have grown up going to church, but you didn't. Or on the other hand, if you came from a background where you didn't have that uh, great blessing of growing up in a Christian home, then there will have been a, a clearer distinction. At some point you didn't know who Jesus was, but something happened. Some people entered your life. The gospel reached you somehow. The lights went on at some point. That faith that you had been taught about and shown by a family or a community became your own faith. We've all got the same story to tell. And John tells it. He's seen and he has borne witness. What I love about John is that he's self-forgetful. He doesn't focus on himself. He's looking away to Jesus continually. So different to our natural state, which is self-absorption. Day by day, what's likely to be our mindset when we roll out of bed in the morning? Self-absorption. How I feel, what I have to do today, what are my responsibilities, what are my stresses? And again and again, John the Baptist shows it what it's like to be self-forgetful. That's a phrase that I've taken from a little book by Tim Keller, which I love. I would recommend that book so highly, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a tiny little book that you can read in a pretty short time. Just again and again reminding us of how freeing it is to let go of our preoccupation with ourselves for the sake of Jesus. So, what kind of things make you self-forgetful? Are there people that you find, if you're with them, time just sort of passes? Are there activities that you love? Love to be part of and find that you're not self-conscious or wondering about yourself on how you feel. 
Our hope today, as we see Jesus proclaimed so clearly, is that we can be taken with him and that looking at him and gaining a clearer vision of Jesus is what will help us increasingly to forget about ourselves and instead be preoccupied with him. So that's John the Baptist and his self-forgetful witness. The purpose of his witness in these verses is really clear. It's his introduction of Jesus. This is the public moment where he is announcing, here he is, look, behold. Uh, And there's three profound descriptions of Jesus. So let's look at them one by one as we go through this passage. Jesus, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus, the Messiah. Three descriptions revealing Jesus' identity and his mission, or the how of Jesus' mission, the Lamb of God, the who of Jesus' mission, the Son of God, and the what of Jesus' mission. He's the Messiah. How, who, and what. So let's consider Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, which John uses as his title to tell those who are listening who Jesus was, is such a, it's a common biblical analogy and streaming through the whole of the Bible. Back in Genesis, we've got Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. Isaac's life in danger and he is rescued because God provides a lamb and the lamb dies instead of Isaac. Uh, In the book of Exodus, the Passover, when the people of Israel are being redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and God's chosen means that he gives them to be saved from the judgment which God pours out on the nation of Egypt is the lamb who dies and the blood of the lamb is painted on the doorpost. The death of the lamb saves the people. In Leviticus, when they're in Mount Sinai and the law is being given and then the whole of the Old Testament religious system is being unpacked, the sacrifice of a lamb is right at the heart of it. It's part of the everyday life. The lamb dies so that they can exist in relationship with the holy God. It's a symbol of how their sins are taken away. The image of the lamb of God appears in Isaiah uh, chapter 53, which we read some of earlier. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're the sheep, the disobedient, hopeless, lost sheep, yet he was oppressed and afflicted. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. As Isaiah sums up, that beautiful passage in Isaiah 53, he bore the sin of many and made transgression for the intercessors. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's so clear when you pause and reflect, well, what's the Lamb do? How does the Lamb work throughout the Bible? How does the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world? But do you wonder if those standing there beside the Jordan who'd come out to see this wild man, this charismatic you know, social media superstar, John the Baptist, when he said, look, here's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world, did they stop and think, what on earth is he getting at? There's only one way that ends. There's only one possible meaning. Jesus will die. There's no other way to interpret that. The Lamb plays no other function throughout the whole of the Bible. It's consistent. Here's the Lamb of the world, the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world. The only way he's going to do that is by dying, sacrificing himself so that sin can be removed. It's the how, the mission of Jesus to take away the sin of the world and how will it happen? 
through his sacrificial death. So John announces who Jesus is and he gives his own testimony and he culminates it with this description of verse 34. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And he explains the events of his baptism as we've looked at. Jesus was anointed permanently by the Holy Spirit and affirmed verbally by the Father. The Holy Spirit's involved, the Father's involved, and John says Jesus is the Son. We're talking about relationships. We're describing this mysterious way that God exists, which as church history goes along, Christians have summarized using the, the Trinity as a shorthand. God is three in one. They didn't have that terminology at this point, but it's pretty clear. The whole of God, Father, Son and Spirit are involved in propelling and announcing and empowering and directing the mission of Jesus. Now there's a textual issue here, which you may have noticed depending on your translation, uh, whether we should read, this is God's chosen one or this is the Son of God. Uh, and there's, it's not clear which should be read, both are present in the text, uh, whether it's God's chosen one, which is a reference to Isaiah uh, again, Isaiah 42, introducing the ministry of the suffering servant. Uh, or whether it's a reference to the Son of God, which is clearly uh, there in the next passage that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks. Given the context of the Father and the Son and the introduction by the Spirit, I think Son of God, uh, that's how I'm taking it this morning, but I don't think anything fundamental rests on that. So, Jesus' relationships. He's a member He's one of the three persons of the single one God. And so as we think about his mission, this is the who. It's about relationship. Jesus' mission will introduce us to the Father, will share with us, will baptise us with the Spirit. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, the Son of God. And then, we skip ahead a few moments and we'll sort of catch up as we move through the passage. But let's look down to the end in verse 41. We hear this witness on the lips of the first disciples, Andrew, telling his brother Peter, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. This was the first response of a, of a fervently religious Jewish man who's discovered Jesus, he goes to his friend and says, we found the Messiah. As Jimmy explained last week, the context of these um, the situation of Israel at the time was the exile, the end of exile, their return from exile to the promised land, but the unsatisfying, unfinished, incomplete nature of their existence there. They hadn't experienced the fullness of God's promises. They were still waiting. And here's an Israelite excitedly declaring, that's who this is. He's the Messiah. He's the promised Old Testament saviour king. The imagery of the Messiah, the anointed one, literally brings to mind the kings, the Old Testament kings, and most powerfully, David, the king of Israel. Jesus has authority as the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, is to introduce and preach the kingdom. That's what the Messiah does. He's a king and he has a kingdom. And that's what he's preaching and inviting us to join so how is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God? Who is the Son of God who introduces us to relationship with the Father and the Spirit? And what is the kingdom? The Messiah who has come to rescue his people and bring into being a new kingdom. 
a new community, a new way of existing in the world for his purposes. He invites us to join his mission. Recently I heard an encouraging and interesting sort of presentation. It was an evangelistic presentation about intelligent design and one of those moments where like you hear all of these things about the way our universe is made and the way the planets are and the way the earth is and you just have these moments of going, that's amazing. That, that is amazing. One of them which really struck out to me was the way the solar system is designed. There's the sun, there's all the planets. Perhaps you've heard this, you know, if the earth was a little closer to the sun, we'd be fried. If the earth was a little further away, we'd freeze. It's just perfect. Now, that was all in the context of encouraging people uh, about God's existence. As I read the passage uh, during the week and began to think about Jesus, the image of a solar system with a blazing sun around which everything orbits seems to fit in a different way. Jesus is the blazing sun. Everything lines up with him. Every aspect of human history, every aspect of God's plan for history, the whole of the Bible, themes of the Bible which run through the Old Testament, gathering pace, gathering information, and then they all come together in Jesus and continue on through to the end of the story, the return of Christ, which we anticipate and look forward to. Jesus is the blazing center. And this passage, along with the whole book of John, encourages us to reflect is he the blazing centre of my life? Is that what my life's been like this week? As I've rolled out of bed and moaned my way through the morning before I stumbled into the car to go wherever I had to go for that day, did I, do I look at that and think, oh, yep, there's a, there's a Christian, Jesus is just blazing away in his heart? Well, look, maybe it's not obvious. We all have moments like that. But in the thick of it, perhaps there is. When you stop and say, look at that, that person forced some time into their busy morning to read the Bible. Well, that's a strange practice. Wow, there's a priority, isn't there? Or maybe we're caught in the middle of some relational issue at work or we're sitting at home with our family at night and we've got plenty of reason to be self-absorbed, to moan and groan, to um, just, you know, low-key express some of our frustration on those around us. It's very easy. Well, there's a moment to reflect, is Jesus the blazing centre of my heart? Because if he is, the gravity is going to direct my thought and my heart to him. And the grace I know from him is going to shape the way I relate to those around me. It's going to undermine my desire to be a little bit self-absorbed and instead reverse that and let me realise I have what I need in Jesus. I can bless those around me. The trouble is we live in a culture that's almost systematic at dismantling all of this. Everything we've looked at today where Jesus is presented to us as glorious and winsome and beautiful, our culture tries to flip. It's the air we breathe. Let me try and give you a fairly frivolous example of how this works sometimes. Um, when I grew up in New South Wales, I was a rugby league fan when I was young. Uh, and if you live in New South Wales and you're a rugby league fan, then the Broncos are the enemy. It's just how it is. I moved to Queensland and I was living in Brisbane. At that point, there were no other Queensland teams. And I had this disturbing experience. I cared a lot more about rugby league in those days, although I will say I've just become a lifelong Dolphins fan, so you can chat to me about that afterwards. I had this disturbing experience of realising I was hearing a lot about the Broncos just always on the news. Everyone's always talking about them. 
I was beginning to get to know the players. I was beginning to kind of understand the storylines. And in a couple of scary moments, I felt myself beginning to care just a little bit about what happened to the Broncos. Now, I caught myself and I stamped that out. And uh, it's not actually that hard because every year there's this little moment, this little festival of New South Wales rugby league hating which goes on in Queensland called the State of Origin, which, you know, could have set me straight again. It's a frivolous way to point out that where we live and the culture we're in and the things we hear and the patterns of people around us just have this way of turning us so that we don't even know it, but our allegiances and our ideas end up pointing just a little bit differently to where we sort of think they do. Here's what I'm getting at. If Jesus is the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world, well, what does our culture think about that? Well, it's really, how would you put it? It's denial. Sin is not a thing. The, the thought that we are not good enough is heresy in our society. The thought that we have some brokenness, which is actually short of sin, even that is off the table. You, you won't hear anywhere, social media, TV, workplace environment, newspapers, anything. You won't hear any kind of encouragement that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness. You'd never be reminded of your brokenness or your guilt. What we just did a moment ago, where we had a moment of public repentance, that's really strange. And for anyone who's visiting this morning, I'm so glad you're here. Did you sit and think, what are these people even doing? A moment of public repentance? It doesn't make any sense because sin's not a thing. So our, our worldview, our Christian worldview, is at odds with the world that we live in. Now, I love this truth, as funny as it sounds, the truth that we're sinners, because it's true. And we can take an honest look at our heart, and then we can get help. We can acknowledge our shortcomings. We can receive and accept the glorious grace of Jesus to help us live then by his grace. What about the Son of God? Jesus is the Son of God. Well, our culture obviously is fairly materialistic, so any kind of mention of a divine being is probably not going to get anywhere. But actually way more than that, our culture is not interested in orienting our lives around some other greater being. Our culture is sort of a full-throated embrace of well, what every one of our sinful natures is quite comfortable with, which is being self-centred. It's sort of what we naturally like to do. And the culture we're living in right now has come all the way around to saying you are the most important person in your life. And the goal of your existence should be to authentically express who you are. That's fundamental doctrine of our society. And in some ways we think, yeah, okay, authenticity is good, isn't it? And really sharing who I am and being honest about myself, yeah, that's a good thing. That's true. But in our society, that's almost like a worship thing to honestly share who I am, whether I'm talking about my sexuality, which is almost the, the pinnacle of worship, to be different and then to share and express and own that. And so when we try and deal with such a complex issue as sexuality, we're doing that in a context and in a culture that says you're the heart of everything and the most important thing is for you to express who you are. So that makes us come at those complex issues of sexuality in a whole different way than if we come at them from a point of view of 
Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one who has authority. He can introduce me to relationship with the Father and the Spirit and they can help me figure out who I am and make sense of my mixed up experience of life and give me hope and purpose and direction. So if we come to thinking about Jesus as the Messiah who gives us a mission outside ourselves, well again, same sort of theme that our society wants to encourage us that our mission is to fulfil ourselves. And so when we do strange things, like setting aside one Sunday a month to pray for the nation of Mexico, or extraordinarily, we gather together our resources and give $12,000 to a couple of churches in Nepal, what a strange thing to do. That's a beautiful expression of what it means to worship Jesus. He's the Messiah, the Saviour King, and He has come to reorientate our whole existence because He's got a mission. And just by showing up here this morning and last week and a few weeks ago, we're part of it. And when you've decided, I do believe in this. I do care about the gospel in Nepal, people I've never met. But you know what? I'm going to actually give my money to that. It's a powerful statement of saying, I'm following a Messiah. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to allow myself to be taught by one greater than I. It's the air we breathe. Our way of life is structured to avoid ever even introducing these kind of contexts. So it's worthwhile thinking, am I running on autopilot in any parts of my life? Am I, am I sort of going along that self-oriented way of life? Do I need to take another look at some of my values or ideas or approaches or behaviours in light of the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Son of God and the Messiah? We have a hard culture to be self-forgetful in. Maybe that's the way to put it. It's really hard to be self-forgetful. I've been to Nepal a couple of times and visited churches there. I had a great time. Um, the gospel is spreading. It's an unreached country where only in recent decades has there been real freedom to preach the gospel. One part of travelling to India or Nepal is that you can't drink the water. You just can't. If you drink the water, you'll be sick the next day. So uh, you just have to take bottled water with you everywhere. It's quite inconvenient. You have to plan ahead because if you get caught, especially if you're going anywhere remote, if you get caught without bottled water, well, you're going to, and you drink the local water, you're going to get sick. How do we navigate our culture when we think, if I breathe deeply from the air that's around me in our culture, I'm going to get sick. It's going to take me away from Jesus and point me in a whole opposite direction of self-orientation. It's going to make me inward-looking and self-absorbed. You know, what's the bottle of water that we have to carry with ourselves and drink in order to wholeheartedly focus on Jesus in our society? If we want to be captivated by Jesus, we will need to be intentional and make real choices to do that. Well, let's come back to that in a moment. Let's look through the last few verses. I love the way this passage starts with, Jesus, uh, with John's witness. He's self-forgetful, I must decrease, he must increase. It introduces us to Jesus the blazing centre of everything, and then it finishes with this really accessible story about the first disciples and what it meant for them. I find it really encouraging. Verse 35, the next day, so we're up to day three now as we move through this week. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Behold, 
the Lamb of God. Do you think he was kind of, look, fellas, you missed this yesterday. <laughs> Behold, the Lamb of God. He doesn't give up on his witness. He perseveres. And it's a costly witness. He's losing disciples quickly. It's a really dumb way to try and build influence, to tell the people who are currently following you, stop following me, unsubscribe, follow that guy. Behold, don't miss him. And they follow. Verse 37. When the two disciples heard him, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, well, what do you want? What do you think was going on here? I find these couple of verses just fascinating. What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Do you think they were kind of tongue-tied? Um, um, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went, and they saw where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. It's just a really mundane sort of picture. John said, this guy is the guy we need to be following. Let's go. Oh, he didn't really give us any more information. Let's just see if we can hang out with him. What a rare opportunity. Whenever you see someone famous, you don't probably have much more of a chance that if you're lucky, they'll give you their autograph or you take a photo with them so you can post it. But they said, can we hang out with you for the day? And Jesus said, yes. I'm up for that. I want to spend time with you. And they begin to get to know him. They're seeking him. He shares himself with them. Wouldn't it have been great to be there? Another one of these moments all through the Gospels where you just think, wow, what did they chat about? I would love to have heard that. Because the effect on them is like an overflow. One of my favorite images of the Christian life is like a fountain. We're filled up from Jesus. And whatever he does in our lives overflows and cascades to others. And that's what happened to them. Verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Now, as we go through the Gospel of John, you'll get used to these moments of thinking, oh, who is that other guy? I thought he would have been identified. It might have been John, the author of the Gospel. He sort of does that. He, he was there, but he puts himself in the background. So maybe the other guy was John. We don't know. Andrew, the first thing he did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. It's a natural result of seeing and knowing Jesus that it overflows to others. So Andrew goes to find his brother. There's a place for witnessing to strangers. Sometimes opportunities will come along where a conversation presents itself and you can speak about Jesus. And you don't know that person before and you probably never see him again, but there's a chance to do that. That's necessary and important. There's also a place for sharing Jesus in our long-term relationships, people that you've known for years, like your brother or your parents or your oldest friends. And if you have a brother or sister or parents or children or old friends who aren't following Jesus, then you'll know deeply the pain of that. So there's some encouragement here. Andrew and Peter, they're brothers. They knew each other. Andrew knew that Peter would be keen to hear about the Messiah. And so the first thing on his mind, I've learned something new, I'm going to go tell. 
And that's what happens when we're in relationship with people for years and years. If you've got something going on in your life, if there's something new that you're discovering, if there's a new way that Jesus is changing your life, that's a great thing to just bring up again, to talk again with someone you know and love who doesn't follow Jesus. This is new in my life. I know what's important to you. Can I share how Jesus is actually helping me in this way? So anyway, that's what Andrew does. And Peter comes to Jesus and... Verse 42, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. Another John, unrelated to our other two. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Cephas is Aramaic, the language they were speaking. Peter is in Greek, the language John years later is writing this gospel in. They both mean rock. That's remarkable, isn't it? Now, Jesus and Peter and Andrew, they all came from the same area in Galilee. Maybe they knew each other, hard to know, but it doesn't seem like there was any profound relationship. But up rocks this, you know, fisherman, and Jesus sees him and says, Ah, you've got a new name. Now, we're going to call you the rock. Now, Peter's got a whole lot to come in his story. And he had some spectacular failures. But God also used him profoundly as a part of the mission that Jesus the Messiah King was about to bring. And so at that moment, Jesus kind of looks into the future and says to Peter, you've got a new identity. And that's part of what goes on for us when we encounter Jesus. If he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if he's the Son of God who can introduce us to the Father and fill us with the Spirit... If he's the Messiah, King, the Saviour, who's bringing a new kingdom into existence and wants to invite us to join him, well, that's going to change my identity. That's going to change the direction of my life. Today, this year, this decade. So word spreads. Maybe there was, it sounds like there was a buzz, doesn't it? There's people around. John the Baptist, he's preaching, it's wild, he's, like, he's baptising people. They're not Gentiles, they're Jews. What's going on? The authorities are down here. Wow, that heightens the tension, doesn't it? Now, John starts and points to this new guy and people are starting to flock to him. There's two ways it's happening. There's come and see and there's go and tell. John's doing the go and tell kind of ministry. He's, he's got the gift. He can speak clearly. People are listening. Well, I'm going to tell you. Andrew's doing the come and see kind of a ministry. My life's been changed. Why don't you come and find out about Jesus. And those might suit different ones of us, depending on our personality and our relationships. Do you have the opportunity to do the go and tell, to take the initiative, to have the bold conversations? Do you have the opportunity to do the come and see? Invite people to come to church or come to something one-off or share something with them. Someone did that in your life? Someone brought you to Jesus? Whether it was parents or friends or a church community, So as we look through this passage, we've seen John, we've seen Jesus, we've seen the disciples. What should we take from it? Well, there's a lot there we've already talked about. But John, the author of the gospel, John the evangelist, as he's known, at the end of the book gives us this really clear description of his point. And it's the kind of question we can ask ourselves after every passage. This is John 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So every passage in John that we read, there's a couple of things we can ask. How does this strengthen my belief in Jesus and clarify my vision of him? And how does this inform the life that I hope to live in his name? So let's, well, let's look away from ourselves to Jesus. Let's reflect on what it means that he's the Lamb of God and the Son of God and the Messiah. Let's fill our vision with him to strengthen our belief, to let him fill us so we overflow to others. These disciples wanted time with Jesus, and that hasn't changed very much. If you want your life to be shaped, time is your most powerful weapon. So keep spending it with Jesus. In whatever way you personally can do so, reading his word and praying. I noticed down the back these couple of scripture journals on the table. I just love these. Um, I have one of these John ESV journals. I've seen some people have them, which is fantastic. If you don't have one, I really encourage you to grab one. You've got an amazing opportunity over this next period of time at church where every single week a community of people are going to come together to look at the same passage. And you know that in advance. So you can read it and think about it and write your questions and let it sink in and then rock up on Sunday uh, or perhaps in, grow- in your home groups, uh, how are they working, and share, this is what grabbed me, or I do not understand this, and together encourage each other to believe more deeply and, and rejoice together in Jesus. And let that shape the life that you live in his name, and the life that you live in the church community. It's a continual effort to overcome our busyness and our distance and our independent outlook on life and instead invest in one another's lives. So let's do that. And let's continue to see the opportunities that might be for us to be a witness, whether it's a go and tell or a come and see. Let's keep fighting against the culture that we live in, which is trying to undermine these truths. A final encouragement may be that these disciples, Andrew, Peter and the others, had plenty of failures and struggles spectacular failures and struggles at times so we shouldn't go away from this feeling of pressure that oh I, there's a standard i have to meet no they had a hold of one big idea they had a hold of jesus they saw him clearly they believed in him and at every point where they messed up and crashed and burned they still had a hold of the grace of jesus and so they recovered from that, had their good points and their bad points. So for all of us, whether you feel full of confidence and joy or quite the opposite, there's encouragement to set our eyes on Jesus and follow him, the blazing center of all existence. So let's pray that he would be the blazing center of our lives and the church. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 